You think we're going to settle, we are become equal, do you think? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I don't, I would like to feel that we will be equal, but I don't see it happening, not in this generation. Maybe, maybe, we don't know what's, because when my grandmother was coming along, we didn't know that the slaves would be freed. That happened. But right now, I don't see blacks being equal. Do you? That was retired nurse Glendora Hubbard of St. Louis, Missouri. She was 104 years old when we met, and she had been retired for quite a while. I met Miss Hubbard while in the Midwest during a pandemic. Miss Hubbard had been born into a family around the time her siblings and her mother were stricken with tuberculosis during the last pandemic in this country. Meeting Miss Hubbard was the perfect representation of what we're here to do. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. Welcome to Before You Go. Brian and I thought we'd take time during this episode with the help of Ms. Hubbard's story to describe why Before You Go is so necessary at this time in history, and frankly, how grateful we are to bring you these stories. Right. We get a chance to meet history, and when that happens and there's a mic nearby to record it, it's the best feeling. Phenomenal. Bryant, I'm not sure listeners understand how excited you and I become when we hear a phrase such as this one. What year were you born? I was born in 1916. What was your birthday? April the 20th. April 20th, 1916. Yes. Wow. Love it. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> I, I just can only imagine what you've seen, what you've seen and experienced in her life. Exactly. It's, she's seen, I mean, I, I would think like 100 year olds have seen everything, right? <laughs> Through a century, our centenarians, they witnessed the world. I mean, even if you just look at the technological advancements in the last 10 years, let alone the last 100 years. There's so much to say. Lessons to learn. Of course, I asked Miss Hubbard for advice about how to live to be 100. We'll get to that in a bit. Want to hear her story? Oh, yes. Let's get it. I'm Glendora Baker Hubbard. I'm the last of seven children. My mother died when I was two years old, so I don't remember her at all. I went to elementary school in Farmington, Missouri. At that time, there were no high schools in Farmington for black students. But my dad was interested in education. Although he did not finish A3, he was interested in everything else, getting some education. So he had some friends who lived in St. Louis. And we got a ride on the train from Farmington to St. Louis to go to school at Summer High School. I finished there in 1932 at the age of 15, and I wanted to go into nursing. My dad did not want that to be because my mother had died of tuberculosis, my sister had died of tuberculosis, it was all in the family. And he was sure that if I went into nursing, I would be the victim too. But I persuaded him to let me go into nursing. 
I went to Stowe Teacher's College for two years. By that time, I was 17 years old. Still, had to be 18 to go into nursery training, but there were no schools in St. Louis for black students. But my dad, being adventuresome, found some people who knew that the Sisters of St. Mary's were opening a school for black registered nurses down on Papan. So I went there. I lied about my age. At that time, you didn't have to worry about birth certificates and all that. So they accepted me at 17. My dad was a beautiful, tall man, handsome. But he was a clerk, a bank clerk. You can't imagine a black bank clerk in 1916, can you? But that's what he would, they gave him that title. He was a janitor to the bank, but back then they didn't have adding machines and all the equipment that you have now. So he did all of the work behind closed doors after hours because he was a smart man. So that's why they gave him the title of clerk. He was no clerk, he was a janitor. But he was a smart man. He was never a clerk, but he was doing clerk's work after hours. Wow. Well, he was a janitor during the day. Yes, during the day. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So he had a math brain. He didn't graduate from high school. No. But he could do math really well. He read all the time, all the time. Mm -hmm. I have a picture of him standing outside the bank. You would think he was the owner because he was always well-dressed. He was standing on the corner and directed children to school. Do you know your grandparents? Were they enslaved? Are you My grandmother was a slave, yes. Where? In Tennessee. And my aunt, who was a school teacher, oh God, she was a slave, and she had two children by her slave owner and two by her real husband. The two that she had by the slave owner, one was my dad and one was my Aunt Daisy, which gives you an idea of what they were working with. The other two amounted to nothing. One was a drunkard. And the woman did not want to do much of anything. But my dad and my Aunt Daisy made something of themselves. Like I said, the freeing the slaves was important because my grandmother was a slave. And strangely enough, my other grandmother was not a slave. She was very fair. Maybe that had something to do with it. What do you think about, um, since you've been around since 1916, Every time it was time for black people to feel equal, and then something would happen, and then now people are marching the streets. I mean, what do you think about being black in America? What does that mean to you? How do you think we're going to survive this as black people? You think we're going to settle or become equal? Do you think? Is that what you're asking? Yes. I don't, I would like to, feel that we will be equal. 
But I don't see it happening, not in this generation. Maybe, maybe. We don't know what's, because when my grandmother was coming on, we didn't know that the slaves would be freed. That happened. But right now, I don't see blacks being equal. Do you? It's amazing that not much has really changed over the years in some ways. And the enslavement has changed for sure. But some would say, some would say <laughs> right? Which is but, awful. But so, I mean, some of the things have not changed. Mm -hmm. um, I remember a story that my grandmother told me when she was young and she remembers her grandmother who came with eight children. They actually walked from Texas uh, not sure what part of Texas, but they walked from Texas to Arizona and they settled in Tucson, Arizona. This is my grandmother's father's family. And she remembers meeting and spending time with her grandmother who was a freed slave. And she said she was very petite, a small woman, small framed woman and very quiet and soft-spoken. And she would always tell me the story about how she would walk through the house uh, and you could barely hear her walk. And uh, apparently that was, you know, how she was trained anytime she was, I, I guess, in the slave master's house when she was young. Mike, so mm -hmm. you're saying your grandmother's grandmother was enslaved in Texas and freed while she was in Texas and yes. decided to walk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, they're looking for better opportunities and, um, one thing that my grandmother, I'd never forget this story, was she said she would, you know, help, you know, her grandmother bathe. And she remembers the scars on her grandmother's back. Oh, my gosh. Uh, from being beaten. Um, I mean, this is amazing that um, that's still, you know, recent history. You know, it wasn't like many, many, many years ago. I mean, we're talking even during the time of, uh, you know, the, the turn of the 19th, the 20th century. You know. Just a few generations ago. And she right. still would tiptoe through the house. Yeah. And she was um, quite an amazing woman, very strong, very resilient. And, um, you know, actually have an old photograph of her and, oh the my kids gosh. and her kids. Oh, wow. eight amazing. kids. She walked across the country. Yeah. They had a, uh, some type of wagon trail and um, I'm not sure what animals they brought with them, but um they survived and thrived, you know. Because you were born in Arizona, correct? Yeah, so my grandmother's father, he um, moved from Tucson to Phoenix, Arizona. And um, I think he was a Pullman porter for a while as well. Yeah. So you have this direct line to all these incredible people <laughs> that survived, yeah. right? That, like you yes. talk to these people and get that oral history. My family didn't talk so much, but, <laughs> but it's so <laughs> fantastic that you were able to hear these stories. But I'm thankful, you know, that we, we, we've gotten past some things. Mm -hmm. um, yet again, you know, we have so much further to go, you know, in terms of opportunity. Um, and some would say that, oh, it's, it's what you make, it's what you do on your own, it's what you earn, it's what you uh, go out and hustle. And I guess some of that's true, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, lot of circumstances where people aren't doing good, even in spite of, you know. That's why we have to know this history. Right. And I'm so grateful we get to meet people just like your relatives who are able to share that with us, you know, before it's too late and we lose it. 
we right. lose those stories and those accounts because that is the reason, like you said, why we're in the state that we're in in a lot of communities. Right. And, and I think we just have to, you know, make sure the young people get the message and what's learned and what can be continued, you know, because this oral history is really important um, just to sit and listen and, you know, understand because you won't find most of this in any kind of history book. Absolutely. It's such an honor to be on this side of the microphone, taking it all in. And guess what? The oral history division of the Missouri History Museum knows the feeling. So why do I bring them up? Because the talented and curious Gwen Moore is their oral historian. And Gwen and I met and Maybe I envy her job, or maybe I just think she's a cool person. Right. But I just want to share with our listeners that from time to time, we'll collaborate with Gwen and the Missouri History Museum for more of these fascinating stories on Before You Go. Now, maybe one day we'll even take this global. What do you think about that? I say let's plan on that. <laughs> it's so valuable to collect oral histories. Why not from around the world? I love that we get to preserve history by just having a conversation. Well, you're right. And it's something we all can do. We get a chance to do it as a podcast, but we encourage our listeners to record your loved ones and chance encounters and preserve important moments in history as well. Stay tuned for later when we tell you how to share those stories with us. Want to hear more? Oh, yes. So there's a famous Black hospital where Ms. Hubbard and many Black professionals worked when they couldn't work anywhere else. I'm speaking of Homer G. Phillips Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Ms. Hubbard was employed as part of a notably skilled nursing staff. She lived on the grounds as well. The campus was located in an area of the city known as The Ville. During the 1920s, that was home to quite an elite crowd. You had black professionals, entertainers, and even millionaires Annie Malone. A number of years later, my mom even remembers walking to her piano lessons and hearing singing as she passed the home of opera star Grace Bumry. The Ville has a lot of history. Wow. I guess another famous resident of the Ville is Sumner High School, where students Chuck Berry, Arthur Ashe, and Miss Hubbard were in attendance, but not at the same time as Miss Hubbard, or your mom, of course. Of course. <laughs> So back in the day, if you were a black patient and needed medical care in St. Louis, Homer G. Phillips Hospital in the Ville was the only option. Yes. We return to the story of former Sumner High School student, Ms. Hubbard, as she's finishing up nursing school at a very young age, ready to go to work. I think I went to Homer Phillips to work. I worked there until any time I got married and had a child. Let's <laughs> back up. Where did you meet your husband? Huh? Where did you meet your husband? We went to school together, but at that, that time he wasn't just interested in this tall, skinny girl. But he was going into the service, and a friend of his gave a going away party for him and one for me. And we met at this party. He went in the service the next day. He said, I'm going to keep in touch with you. I said, okay, that'll be good. He did. He wrote. <laughs> that was special. Was That's he special. in the Army or the Marine? Army, Army. Do you know uh -huh. where he was stationed? Huh? Do you know what country he was stationed in? He did not go overseas. He was stationed in Fort Rochico, Arizona. 
That's where he stayed. So when he was destroyed, we did get married as soon as he got out of service. That's beautiful. How old were you when you got married? Oh my goodness. You asked me, I can't tell you how old. About 27, I guess. And when you were, when you got married, you were already working as a nurse. Oh yes. Uh -huh. So tell me about being, a, you went right into Homer G. Phillips? Yeah. Tell me about being a nurse in a black hospital. We were all black. All the doctors came for their internship at Homer Phillips from Meharry. I think one, one person we got was from Boston U, and he was sort of isolated. You might remember him because he stood apart from the rest of the guys from Meharry. I do know this, that at that time, the city did not have a retirement plan at all. So I worked all those years without a retirement plan at Home Phillips. I'm sure they have one now, don't they, do? But we didn't have one then. So we left, I left Home Phillips with my husband and we moved to Ohio, Cleveland. We worked in Cleveland for a while, and he was transferred to Pittsburgh. <laughs> so your husband was being transferred? He was with the, he worked with Anheuser Bush. They transferred him from Cleveland to Pittsburgh. Tell me about being a nurse. I know nothing about it. Okay, nothing about being a nurse. I know that I've been in the hospital, but <laughs> tell me about being a nurse. I would not be your nurse because I only worked in pediatrics. Pediatrics. So I would not be a nurse. But I loved working with children. They could be so deathly sick one day and the next day they were ready to go out and play. So it was rewarding to be with them. You take to see them very sick, but you could. It was rewarding to see me well and get, get out of the hospital. Now, how old were the children you normally worked with? They were up to 12 years old. On 5 South at Old Phillips, that's where I worked. 5 South. Do you, can you tell me what tuberculosis is? What does that do to the body? It gives your lungs. Your lungs. It's a, a bacteria that forms it sometimes is a result of a severe cold or something, but it's actually called by a bacteria, it's not a virus like the flu, it's a bacteria. At that time, there was no cure for it, but they have perfected the cure now. Right, we all have to get a shot. Huh? We all have to get a shot now. Yeah, here you can get a vaccine. So, what do you think is going to happen with this current pandemic? We're in a pandemic now. What's going uh, I have no answers. <laughs> Nobody has asked. I'll tell you what you have to ask Mr. Trump. He can do it. He knows all the answers to everything. <laughs> so Trump knows all the answers to everything. <laughs> Doesn't know the answer to anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> I mean, as a nurse, how do you feel about seeing the numbers go up? You know, it seems to me that everybody is interested in numbers rather than a person's life that's going, has gone. It's just a number, 12, 13, whatever. Uh-uh. We're too concerned with numbers.
come back to the real thing. These lives that are going. Okay. Do you remember some of the cases you had with the being a pediatric nurse? And as children. The children that you treated. Pneumonia. In particular, diarrhea. Oh God, yes. <laughs> that could carry down in a hurry. Diarrhea. Upper respiratory. Well, that would go along with the pneumonia. Uh, a lot of well, a lot of things you picked up since then that we didn't even know existed back then. We're talking a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. We're making progress. That's true. We're children. We're Shriners Hospital, St. Jude. All of those are working with children and making progress. I wish I could be involved. Not <laughs> Too much. The doctors had already been vocal for when they got there, but some of the nurses were ready for them. <laughs> yeah. That must have been disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But some of them still did marry and, and live here for a while. And so, what were your uniforms like? Do you remember? Uniforms? White. White, and oh, God, some of them looked terrible. <laughs> but I was always so proud of mine that they had a laundry over there. In, in I lived in a nursing home. I think on Good Avenue, it's probably still there, and where oh. the nurses live. Oh, so you live actually with the other nurses? Yeah. Okay, even though you were married. I wasn't married yet. Oh, okay. Okay. That comes up later. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you lo I lost you. Then. All right. So how, what was it like living with other nurses? Were, did you guys even get a lot of sleep? It wasn't an eight-hour day, was it? Okay. Eight hours. Eight hours. Oh, eight hours. Okay. You didn't have uh, uh, choices. She had, you eight to four, four to twelve, twelve to back to eight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, with no retirement plan, how did you... You guys were just there working out of the goodness of your heart, basically. You were just well, you go, all you got was a salary. I was not aware of the fact that there was no pension. You didn't think about pension. You just looked for your salary that you got every two weeks or so. Do you think it was different for the white hospitals that they had pension? I don't think they did. It's a city. That was a white hospital. It was still a city. And you know, Miss Hubbard was very close to her father. I could tell how much she admired him, so I asked her how he passed away. My dad was a beautiful, tall man, handsome, big. Died of a chicken bone. A what? Chicken bone. <gasps> what? How? Well, he swallowed the chicken while he was eating, and the bone went down his throat. It passed all through his esophagus. He it tells us there and lodged in his rectum. My stepmother, he kept complaining about 
pain in his lower back. At that time, he was married to my stepmother. You don't hear all of these. And <laughs> she took him to the doctor. We were talking 100 years ago. White doctor, of course. And he discovered that he had this chicken bone just above his rectum. He removed it. And in removing it, he punctured the lower intestines just further. He told my stepmother to take him home and apply some heat. She said to her, apply the heat to his back. I worked. He said, it doesn't matter. Try both. That should have been anything to her. There's no hope for him. So anyhow, she did apply heat, but he kept steadily going down, down, down. Until he got to the point he wouldn't eat. She would fix food and try to feed him. So she called me and my brother here in St. Louis to come see about him. When we got there, he was yellow as gold. The palm, his hand, his eyes, everything were yellow as gold. So at that time, Dr. Sinclair, did you know him? Sinclair here was a doctor, and I called him and asked him if he would accept him as a patient. We drove back to St. Louis, put him in the hospital, and he died the next day um, from poisoning all through his body from that puncture of his intestines. Wow. Of course, it would have been handled differently if that had been a hundred today, of course. It's so wild to hear about how medicine has changed, of course, for the better, but so much could have been repaired and people could have survived and people could have lived. I mean, right. I, I guess it just takes time through the years. And I'm sorry that her father passed away like that. I know. And you, you just are thankful now that we're in a time where, you know, modern medicine can help people survive, you know, much longer. Yes. I mean, there's, it's no more clear than hearing it from a nurse, <laughs> you right. know, that I'm right. sure she did everything she could for her dad, but the medicine and the, the medical treatment just was not there yet. So, so, so deep when we talk to 100 year olds <laughs> and hear their story. It is. As you can imagine, there is a racial incident Ms. Hubbard shared and strangely, it actually worked in her favor. <laughs> and oh. she also shares the secret to living past 100. Oh, I got to hear this one. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Can't wait. So I wonder, what did you eat to live this long? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is it a special diet? You just wonder, you know, what is it? You She'll know, some you. people I've asked in the past um, did a story about a woman who turned 104, 103, something like that. But anyway, she said, no, I eat whatever I want to. Oh, okay. Uh, she says, she eats whatever she wants. And uh, there's no secret. Her secret, she says, is love everybody. Just mm. love everyone, no matter they're white, black, green, purple, yellow. <laughs> so love everybody because, you know, love is the key is what her message was. I said, that's true. Okay. I love it. I remember that one. <laughs> And back to Miss Hubbard, what's really cool is that she's lived long enough to know both relatives who were enslaved and the presidency of Barack Obama. Amazing. Let's take a listen. Yes. 
You know, there are so many things you look back on that you accepted as daily routine. I can remember I was in high school then. We were living over on Finney Avenue. And we played basketball downtown at Pine Street Y. And of course we walked to game and walked back home over again. So we decided we were hungry. We went to White Castle. We knew they wouldn't let us sit down. So everybody ordered their White Castles. We were standing while we were ordered. Then we sat all sat down. And he said, Oh no, we can't serve you. Well, you can't serve us, you take your hamburgers. They took them all back, because we didn't have money to pay for them anyhow. <laughs> but it was a test. I guess I just accepted it as a rule of thumb. It was a challenge, really. But I mean, there was nothing we could do about it as individuals. It had to come from higher authority, of course. But <laughs> That was, that was, if we had allowed it to be, it would have been heartbreak, but we, we put one over on them. It was smart on our part. But I was rejected or made me feel ashamed. Black animal, that was two strikes against us right there. Maybe I didn't, you know, it was forced on me as a rule of thumb right along. I didn't see it as an issue for me. Maybe I was waiting for somebody else to take care of it. That's probably the way it really was. Because like the incident with, with White Castle, I just knew they weren't going to feed us, were not going to let us sit down. But we knew that in advance. I mean, if they had said, oh, yes, we'll give you some hamburgers. What would we do? <laughs> oh, we could pay for it. You guys consider that a victory? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a victory. <laughs> I mean, you, you counted your victories, really, not your losses. Did you ever think you'd see a black president? Hmm? Did you ever think you'd see a black president? No. Did you? Or do you know besides younger than I I didn't think about it. I did. I did think about it. I didn't think it would ever happen. You have to be a philosopher, you have to be a little bit of everything, a preacher, a teacher, and a social worker. You gotta be everything to be a president, a good president. And master negotiator. But did you want to see um, Barack Obama run? Were you excited when he was running, or were you scared? A lot of people were scared when he was running. I didn't, really, I didn't think he was going to make it. But then all the polls started drifting toward his winning, and I went along with the flow then. I said, oh, no, no, not possible. But he made a good president. Even Trump tried to bring him down, but he couldn't. Right. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> So eight years, that went by fast. It's good, <laughs> good eight years. So what, what's the secret to turning the 100? It's in your genes. She's a stubborn old lady. That's why she's lived so long. My, I am a Taurus. 
Do you believe in the horoscope? Yes. My husband used to tell me that, that I was a true Taurus. I'm stubborn as a mule. But I managed to get my way most of the time. <laughs> you have to think for yourself. You don't accept somebody else in the words for it. Think for yourself and do what you think is right. And for goodness sake, pray. You got to free. You can't make it without prayer. If you get a mistaken idea that I don't need to free, I don't read the Bible every day, but I do enjoy reading some inspirational magazines and whatnot. And I do pray every day. You got to do that. That's most important. Okay. What a kind soul. What a life. I'm sure listeners like me. You want to keep up with Miss Hubbard, so join us on our website, beforeyougo.tv. That's beforeyougo.tv, and we'll keep you updated. And while at our website, beforeyougo.tv, you can connect with us. Our guests love fan mail, so don't be shy. Maybe share with them a good story of your own. We also want you to know if you feel moved to offer a donation to our program, we will share your generosity with those who shared their compelling stories. We know you have ideas of people in your circles who are storytellers too. We want to meet them. Drop us a line at beforeyougo.tv and maybe they'll be on our podcast. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away. That's right. And maybe it's a good time to pick up that phone. There's no time like the present. What a gift. gift. Before You Go was an Epiphany Inc. production. Hear more from Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte at beforeyougo.tv.